If you have your Scriptures with you, turn to Psalm 29. We're going to look at this beautiful, majestic uh, psalm. It is extremely poetic, and uh, I'll walk you through it and explain what's going on in the psalm. It's one of my very favorites. And uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, there's uh, text printed in your bulletin, so you can follow along there. Now hear God's Word starting... In Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare and in His temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. When I was in seminary, it seems uh, like yesterday to me, I had a wonderful uh, time in graduate school, although it was extremely difficult, both uh, academically and, of course, changing our whole lives. Uh, I used to own a business, and so moving, sold the business, moved to Florida, go back to school, and I was a 42-year-old among a a whole class of of young people that knew how to use computers. Um, I actually learned to type believe it or not, uh, at 42 years old. It's because in my business career, I paid people to do that stuff for me. And uh, when I got seminary, nobody cared who I was. And I couldn't afford to pay anybody. <laughs> not to learn how to type, you learn how to use a computer, all these fun things. But I had uh, uh, wonderful professors back at Reform Seminary in those days uh, they actually refer to them as the golden years at RTS. Not that there's uh, that it's gone downhill. It certainly hasn't. It's an extraordinarily good school. Uh, but we had an, a, a, a group of professors there that are legendary. R.C. Sproul and J.I. Packer and uh, uh, Richard Pratt and uh, um, Mark Fittato and John Frame. I could go on and on. The men that were there at the seminary that were teaching us. And Dr. Fittato was a Hebrew professor there, one of many that I had the pleasure of getting to know, not only personally, but also study under. Um, And Dr. Fittato did his 1984 PhD dissertation. Listen to this. It's really unusual. In fact, I think Mark was the first one to do a dissertation on this particular subject. He did it at Catholic University of America. And the title of the dissertation, you can look it up online, A Meteorological Analysis of Psalm 104, Psalm 65, 
and Psalm 29. And hearing Mark Fittato talk about Psalm 29 in class and the, the incredible passion that he brought to it just fired my imagination about the Psalms. It changed the way I look at the Psalms even till today. And I hope that after today, you will also have your imagination fired by what is going on in these amazing poems that we hear and read in the Psalter. Really incredible. And the whole thesis of Mark's uh, dissertation was that weather played a huge part in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms, and it was an interpretive device. In other words, the people of that day lived very close to nature. They lived off the land. They didn't have whole foods and uh, uh, sprouts and Albertsons and these different markets. They had markets, they had bazaars where you could go buy things, but most people bought their food uh, from, brought, got their food from home and they went to the market to buy things that they either couldn't raise on their own or couldn't find or some special thing, but they raised their food and they lived very close to nature. And storms had a huge effect on whether or not they would even eat, whether or not they would drink. Not enough water, you die. Not enough food, you die. And they were very close. And so they personalized weather the way they personalized many other things. And listen, don't get the idea that modern people don't do the same thing. We're going to talk about this in a second. Modern people do the very same thing. But when they had a storm rising up out in the wilderness or uh, out at sea, particularly in Israel, you know, it's a strip of land on the Mediterranean, and then to the east is this massive desert, and to the west, the Transjordan on the east, and to the west, the mighty, uh, stormy Mediterranean Sea. So they were very familiar with the cycles of weather. And they personalized it. So you hear in the psalm, the voice of the storm, the thunder of the storm, the flashes and flames of fire referring to lightning, the breaking, the skipping, the, the stripping of things, the wind that is driving through the land in these storms and its destructive power that could be stopped by no one and nothing. And even modern people, as smart as we are, we recognize that nature is uncontrollable, unmanageable, unpredictable. Even as good as we are at predicting weather, you know, it's still a joke that the weathermen don't get it right. Weather is a power, it is a force of nature. And the ancient people, and more importantly, the Bible, it says, weather is an interpretive device. Read this poem and take from it the majesty, the glory of God. And you know, poets in every age, uh, writers and poets, they love a good storm. If you want to introduce something really cool into a story, what do you do? You bring a big old storm into the story. And so we're going to look at this stormy, stormy nature of God. And hopefully it will both create some trepidation, but also some worship and, and majesty. And that's what it did for me. 
We're going to look at three things. Here's your outline very briefly. We're going to look at the rising of the storm, the track of the storm, and then finally the Lord of the storm. The rising, the track of the Lord. So look at the rising of the storm. Verses 1 and 2. What you see in this verses here is David or somebody, the poet, looking out, casting his eyes uh, in this particular instance, out onto over the Mediterranean Sea. Now at other times and other weather patterns, they would look to the east and they would see these storms rising up in the desert. And these whirlwinds, we have them here in El Paso and in the desert. You see them all the time. Some are little, some are huge. These huge whirlwinds of sand, the jinn, the genies or the forces, the gods were rising up in these storms out in the Mediterranean. And it was often with great fear, malevolent intent that these gods would rise up and and rush into creation. And so this, this psalmist probably, in fact, it ascribes it to David. David is looking out, and you know he's a poet, and he's looking out and he's looking at the Mediterranean, and out there a storm is boiling and brewing, and he can see it moving, tracking inland, and, he's, and he says this rising of the storm is God rising up. Over the, over the, the tohu vabohu, the chaos and the void. See, when they looked at water, they saw something unstable, unpredictable. When you look at a body of water, you don't see, normally you don't see stillness over the water, do you? Now, when there is still water, we go, wow, this still water, you know, wonderful. It's so calming, so, so wonderful. But when you look at a river or you look at a, a, a stream or you look at the ocean and there's this immense power throbbing and thundering just right there in front of you. And you know that you can't, you can hardly get a handle on it. And it's shifting, it's moving, it's not stable. And so the ancients ascribed great weight to water. And in Genesis 1, you see God hovering over the waters, the tohu, the bohu. He's hovering over the chaos and the void. And He speaks His voice. The storm is personified. And we do it too. With all kinds of things, we personify. And storms were terrifying. They were awesome. They were fearsome. They were unmanageable. And they represented, as they do today, even to modern people, a transcendent power. Transcendent being a power that is above. That you can't get a hold of by human effort or scientific method. Or whatever. I know that maybe some people predict in the you know, long future from now we'll control the weather. I hope I get to see that. Ha ha. But maybe they will, but you know you're not going to be able to control other things. 
And this was the transcendent power. And he says, ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. He uses the threefold majesty. That's the way they put exclamation points in the old, in the old writings as you would repeat things. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Holy, holy, holy. When you wanted to emphasize, you multiplied the word. They didn't have punctuation like we do. Ascribe, give glory, strength, glory. He saw this majestic power rising up out of the sea and moving towards the land. And who knows what that sea is going to do? Who knows what the consequences of the storm will be as it moves in towards the land? And he ascribes that to God to Yahweh. In fact, he says the word Yahweh, the tetragrammaton in Hebrew, that you cannot pronounce. We don't even know how it's pronounced. So if you go Google it and you find somebody who says, oh, I know how it was pronounced, they're lying. It's the tetragrammaton. It's yod hevav Hey, And it's no one knows how it is to be pronounced. We don't know where the vowel pointing is. So we don't know if it's Yahweh or Yehyeh or Jehovah. We have no idea what it is. And it was, it was so holy, so majestic. It was God's name that He revealed to Moses in the burning bush. And so that name became unpronounceable. And at some point, uh, the, the Jewish world, they switched over and they started just putting Lord in there. They would say Lord and then Lord. And in your Bibles, you'll notice it's capitalized. Whenever they mean the Tetragrammaton, it's, it's Lord, L-O-R-D, in capitals. Little Lord is the word for Adonai. But when you say, when you see it in caps, it means yod That was a singular God. That was a God that all the peoples of the ancient Near East, they knew who He was. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. The God of Jacob. yod And the God of Moses. yod And the God of David. yod He wasn't Baal. He wasn't Mot. He was yod And they all believed in yod Don't think they didn't believe in that God. They believed in everything. And it was that very syncretism that God said, don't do. Don't bring other gods before me, in front of me, in my presence. I don't want to see them. I know they're out there. I know they exist in people's minds and their imagination. But I don't want to see them. So in my presence, no gods before me. And David calls the heavenly beings, B'nai Elohim, he calls to the sons of God, to the gods, to the heavenly powers, whatever is up there. Good or bad, angels and demons, all the heavenly, all the unseen. He says, all of you, ascribe glory to this One who's rising out of the sea and moving over the Tohuvabod, moving over the chaos and the void, bringing power and magic. It's a terrifying image. And they would have thought, judgment, wrath, anger. And they would have been praying. You know what they would have been praying? Oh God, in this storm, bring salvation. Let it just rain enough for the crops. 
Let it just blow enough to get the pollution out of the air and leave everything fresh and clean. Keep the floods to a minimum. Don't come in harvest. Don't come when we're planting, when our little plants are coming. Bring salvation, O God. Amazing. And what does he say is is this, this power that's moving? Derek Kidner in his commentary says this, Note the words glory and holy. Holy speaks of what God is. He doesn't have holiness. He is holy. It's what He is. Holy. 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 And glory. Glory is what boils out and precedes Him. It is this revulgence that swells up and expands before Him into the earth. Glory in everything that you see. It fills the earth. You know, folks, it's so easy. What is happening here is David is calling everybody and everything, including us, thousands of years later. He's saying, look, realize that there is transcendence. There is somebody, something out there greater than you who controls all things. One of the Christian cliches that we have overused is we say, oh, God is in control of everything. But nobody believes that. We say we do. We give lip service to the idea of God's sovereignty. We tip our hat to the idea of God's sovereignty. But let me suggest that if in fact we believed He was in control of all things, you would never have a moment's fear of anything. Yes? Now somebody in this room will come up to me after the service and say, well, I want to correct you, Pastor Chuck. I am not afraid of anything. And you know what I will do? When you do that, Here's what I'm going to do. As soon as you do it, I'm going to go, boo! (laughs) And you will jump. Because you are afraid. Fear plagues every moment of our lives, folks. We just haven't been honest enough to look. And when were the disciples most terrified and afraid? Think. In the storm. In the boat. And Jesus was there with them. It's easy for us to lose sight of God's power. To lose sight of His transcendence. To to let go of it so quickly. And David is calling us to worship this great Creator. And the track of the storm, the track of the storm, the storm hits the shore. It hits the, Medi- it hits the, the coast of the Mediterranean. Far in the north, in Lebanon, 
It comes on shore way up to the north where they can see the dark clouds and it begins its track in verses 3 through 9. That's what's going on. This track of the storm. You know, you can get on TV or you maybe have an app. I have an app on my phone that shows Doppler radar, you know, uh, and all this cool stuff. And you can go find out where storms are. And, you know, if there's a storm here in El Paso, you can watch and it brings it down, you know, and you can see exactly the track of the storm. And it was coming from north to south. You see, the storms can seem random. They can seem like they just come out of nowhere and they have no, no there's no, you know, you see the, the devastation after a hurricane or now we've got this uh, 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 eruption of a volcano, Kilauea on Hawaii, and you see people scrambling and trying, you know, who's going to stop Kilauea? Really? Nobody stops Kilauea. Nobody stops the drought that's going on in Arizona right now and killing you know, people. And horses are dying. Did you see on the news? Horses are dying. I mean, it, it's horrible. I, I listened to NPR the other day. They did an expose on the uh, Dust Bowl in Oklahoma. And I thought, wow, you know, they, they did autopsies on cattle uh, after these dust storms in Oklahoma and their lungs were packed full of dust. Solid. Nobody stops that stuff. It's God's presence. His imminence. If the rising of the storm is transcendence, His tracking through creation, His movement is God's imminence. His presence. And He is moving. And the thing that the psalmist is trying to get across is that this movement is not purposeless. It is not random. It is not for nothing. It has a voice. Look at your text. Seven times He says the word voice. Voice. In other words, God is speaking. This is not just Mother Nature gone crazy. This is a voice that is speaking. In the, in, in the whole psalm, 18 times he identifies the speaker. The speaker is the Lord yod It's not Baal. It's not any of the other gods. You know, Baal was considered the, the Lord of the storm. We talked about this in Elijah five years ago. And then when we looked at Elisha, I mentioned it again. Baal was the Lord of the storm. He controlled the weather. He was a weather god. And so depending on Baal's, you know, whether things worked out just real good with Baal, there were crops or no crops. He was a God of fertility, a God of, of life, a God of life and death. And here, the psalmist, David, is just getting right up in the face of all of the nations around them, all of them, and saying, No! yod he is Lord of the storm. Not Baal. And not anybody else you can dream up. He controls it, but He has a purpose. And His purpose is to move through the land. And then He mentions the waters. Waters represented, like I said a moment ago, this formless, this void, this swirling movement, this randomness. You couldn't count on it. Nobody, look, nobody could walk on water, right? Right? Nobody walks on water because it's 
too formless. It has no substance. Yeah, it can freeze, but people fall through frozen water. (laughs) Haven't you watched those YouTube videos? I mean, water, you know, water is unpredictable. It moves, it's swirly. You can get in a river and be paddling around. The next thing you know, it's tugging you under. You can go out. I've been caught in riptides in Florida and we lived in riptide. You know, I watched my son Daniel get swept away and I was running full boat. Now, that's not saying much. I was running for me. But I was running with all my might till I collapsed in the sand trying to get in. All I could see was his little head going that way. Of course, he had a surfboard tied to him, so he was, there was some safety. But it took him two miles before he broke out. The power of water, oh my gosh, the unpredictability of water. And then he says it breaks the cedars of Lebanon. It makes Lebanon skip like a calf. In other words, the ground is shaking, it's trembling. There's this earthquake going on because of the storm. There's flashing flames of fire. This is all in verse 3 through 9. We won't look at every one of them. There's shaking. There's whipping. There's, there's deer are giving birth. Uh, you know, depending on the vowel pointing in Hebrew. Hebrew has no vowels. You probably know that. It's all consonants. And so depending on where you, how you pronounce the word, you can have two words that are identical and they mean completely different things because you've got to put in the vowel pointing. Now back in the day, before they had writing, they just said it. It was a vocabulary word, and they would just say it with the vowel pointing embedded in the word, of course. And that's one of the difficulties that translators have. But this thing of him get the, the deer giving birth could also be translated that he takes the oak trees and he twists them. I mean, you know, you can twist the pine, but how do you twist an oak tree? Wow. That's power. So it could be giving birth. Maybe the, the lightning, the flashing, the wind is giving birth, you know, causing them to have babies. I don't know. That, that could be. Could be that he's, it could be that he's twisting the oaks up. doesn't matter because it's the same thing. That's what's so wonderful about your Bible. The point is never lost. Listen to what, what one commentator, I love this guy, uh, J.A. Moiter. He says, even the solid fabric of the world seems to rock under the impact of the storm. The whole land from end to end is dominated by the storm. Not just by the storm and by what the storm symbolizes, but by the voice of the Lord. You see, David was a genius. <laughs> He's a shepherd, but he was, a, he was an amazing poet, amazing literary genius. And he said, not just the storm, the voice, the person behind the storm, the one who's speaking, he's the one with all this power. He's the one with all this man. Not just the storm, but by what the storm symbolizes. The voice of the Lord. The sentimentalist. Listen, this is why you should read everything you can by people that are already dead. Because they were the smart ones. There are smart people today, but these people are amazing. Listen. The sentimentalist, which is what most of us are, The sentimentalist said, one is nearer God's heart in a garden. 
More realistic, however, the Bible affirms that we are always nearer His heart in a hurricane. Do you believe that? I bet you don't. You know why? I don't. And I'm way more spiritual than you. (laughs) You know, I say that tongue-in-cheek, folks, please. Listen, folks, honestly, we pray God take the storm over to His house, not over here. And what Moitzer's saying is, we want that calm, still water. We want that garden. But life isn't a garden. It's hard out there. There are stormy things that happen. And what are you going to do with that? And the psalmist just gets right up in everybody's face and he says, God is present there. Not only there also, but there primarily. He is Lord of the storm. And then this beautiful crescendo in verse 9, this climax that it all comes to, he strips the forest bare, and in His temple all cry glory. So do you see the track? He starts in heaven. He rises up off of His throne in heaven. He makes His movement from out there in the, in the chaos, in the void. And He comes into creation. And He moves powerfully, transforming everything and everybody in His path with this incredible imminence. His presence. He moves through the earth, starting in heaven, and comes down to the earth, and moves through the earth, and then He enters His temple, the the temple on earth. And there He steps into the room and He sits on His throne, which by the way, in the temple and the tabernacle, His throne was invisible. You couldn't see it. It wasn't even there. What was there? Those of you that know, what was there that everybody could see? His footstool. In other words, all you could look at is where He put His feet. Everything up there Above that is His throne. Does that give you any excitement? Anybody? I don't know. I'm excited. The rising of the storm. The coming of the storm. The track of the storm. And finally, the Lord of the storm. What is this all point? What is the interpretive device that, uh, that, that uh, Dr. Furtado in his wonderful dissertation, and by the way, I think his was the first, but there are a number of them that have been written since then following this. Because the Bible is full of these allusions to weather. The rising, the track of the storm. Folks, this storm... Don't take it literal. That's not how poetry... You don't use poetry that way. Poetry is an analogy. Yes? Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's, a, it's a device to get you to think, to get your attention to look at something else. Now, 
The Lord sits enthroned. Look at verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Do you know this word flood in Hebrew is only used one other place? (laughs) You don't have to think very hard to get it. Where do you think this word flood is used? Only other time. Say Noah. Noah. 6 through 9, Genesis 6 through 9. That's where the flood. Bible never uses it again until here. And it says, here our God is enthroned over the flood. What was the flood? What's the interpretation? What is the flood? There's no mystery here. There's no Gnosticism here. This is just plain old read it and understand what it's saying. What does the flood represent? It represented two things. Judgment and what? What's the other thing the flood represented? Salvation. There were eight people that got saved in the flood. Judgment. Salvation. The Lord, yod not Baal, not any other gods you can imagine. He's the one that is the decider of life and death. He decides. The Lord is both the Lord of the storm and the Lord of salvation who delivers. Both judgment and salvation, then David is saying both things are a cause for worship. In judgment, what God is saying to you and me and everybody else is that all the hopeless, helpless, horrific, evil things that you see in the world and in your own life every disease, every sorrow, every pain, every loss, every bad news that you've ever had, every emotional distress you've ever been in, everything that anybody has ever, from the Holocaust to the genocide in Armenia, which brought my family from the Middle East to this country, to the, to the uh, horrors that are perpetrated upon immigrants trying to get across Uh, by law enforcement and other people, the horror stories that you hear about immigrants that come over here and commit terrible crimes, all of the terrible things that you hear. The wars in the Middle East, the wars in South America, the wars here and there, drugs, you name it. He's saying, I will judge. I will bring judgment. And it will be right and it will be correct. And where you have failed in your judgments, I will do it right. And at the end of the day, I will set things right. And there will be a new creation that comes out of this storm. The freshness, the electricity that you feel after a beautiful, refreshing storm. And everything is cleansed. Judgment and salvation. The psalm is thundering with a sweeping and powerful, terrifying, it's terrifying, it should terrify you. Judgment through the face of the whole earth, but look at verse 11, it closes with a magnificent benediction of strength, victory, power, Peace after the storm for the people of God. They are blessed with peace in the midst of this fearsome wrath 
blessed with peace. And the psalmist is begging the question, how in the world does anybody escape the wrath of that storm and end up on the other side in the temple, in the temple on earth with God's presence and not just having survived the storm, not just having averted, oh my gosh, I'm lucky I got out of the storm. But hearing that same voice give a benediction, a blessing, and saying strength to you, peace to you. How? Here's how. The Lord of the storm. The Gospel, the New Testament tells us, the Lord of the storm, the Lord of Psalm 29, is the Lord in that storm. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Jesus is asleep on a pillow. A storm rises up. And the disciples are terrified at the storm. It's tearing the boat apart. Jesus is sleeping. I don't know what's going on with that, but He's asleep. And they cry out, Lord, save us! And He gets up and He steps up in the boat. I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can even think of this, folks, and it not thrill your soul. He stands up and He says, Peace! Shalom! Be still. And immediately... It says, calm. It dropped. It didn't just kind of fade away. It dropped to calm water. And he turned and he asked them this question that he asked you and me. Why? Why do you doubt? Why? And all they could do, all they could do is like us. They turned to each other and go, what kind of guy is this? What kind of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey Him. You know what kind of man He is? A man who comes from heaven to earth. He goes into the storm of the cross to die for to take the toll of a boat. The chaos and the void and the emptiness. He moves right into it. And He could have stopped it. He could have said, peace be still to the cross. But He doesn't say it. He doesn't do it. Not my will, but your will be done. I will endure the storm of your wrath. I'll take it for them. So they can come into my temple, my holy place, where I am and be with me forever in my Father's house. I've prepared many rooms. Do not be afraid. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Where did Jesus take up His throne? On a cross, my friends. That was His throne. We even have hymns we sing about it. He took up His throne there on the cross, but He didn't stay. He came down and conquered the Tohu 
Not so we would never have to. You're going to have storms in this life. He said in this world, you're going to have storms, tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Will you trust Him? I sure hope you will. He's our peace in the storm. Let's pray. Father, Jesus Christ, our King, is the Lord of the storm. Not only over it, but in it for us and as us. He took our place. He bore its brunt. So we can never, we don't ever have to be afraid of anything. And when we are caught by surprise and and fear grips our heart, I hope that we will remember His words, do not fear. I am with you. I will go through the fire for you. I will pass through the deep water for you. In Isaiah 43, He promised He would go into the deep water and the fire for us. When you pass through the water, I'll be with you. When you pass through the fire, I will be with you. Help us, Father, please, to trust Him, our great King, the Lord of the storm. Amen.